This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. Do you have the tools to turn your insights into action? Let's be honest, not all marketing activities are created equal. AppSlyer's analytics suite simplifies its complex data and gives you a unified view of campaign performance so you can make better, faster marketing choices at every stage of the customer journey. The goal is to create exceptional experiences that keep customers engaged. To succeed, you need to meet your customers where they are. AppSlyer's customer experience and engagement suite powered by a reliable deep linking engine, lets you create personalized journeys that increase conversion and return on every experience. In addition, AppSlyer is going to keep your budget safe from mobile ad fraud. Bots and click farms aren't going to generate revenue for you. That's why you need a comprehensive fraud protection solution to make sure you're investing in the right channels and only measuring and paying for real actions. Are you ready to start making good choices? Great. Go to AppSlyer.com and get yourself an attribution partner you deserve. I think what's become clearer, certainly in the last few years, as competition in the game industry has really stepped up, is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business. You know, you could be super lucky. Your game is an instant hit. It's resonating with users. But for when that's not the case, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level, that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. That was Melissa Zeloff, VP of Marketing at IronSource. Welcome, everybody, to Twig 156. There's no chit-chat on this episode. Everybody's <laughs> on the clock. We're going to blast through. We've never done a podcast so fast, so please enjoy. Uh, we got two Eric's, uh, the senior one <laughs> and the hulky one, and then we got the uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Adam ready to blast through. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a series of silver bullets by Mr. Adam Telfer. Eric Kress is going to wail on Activision's tumble. Um I'm going to talk about app loving because I find it quite interesting, and we've kind of touched upon it. And now we have the uh, the Hulk Suford here, so he can uh, he can give some some comments on on my thinking. And then maybe if we have time, we're going to talk about Ubisoft's working play to earn, uh, and that's going to be covered by Suford. I'm not going to even ask because how everybody's doing because everybody's doing fantastic. This is a team of winners. Uh, <laughs> everybody's just having the best the best lives ever. So let's just. Gr- Jump in right into the uh, the quick updates, and if I may start, I'm going to start with Pragma raising 22 million in Series B funding. So if you don't know Pragma, they've actually been on this pod- podcast before. It's a back end game back end game engine company 
they've raised $22 million as a Series B founding, funding. They raised $12 million in Series A earlier this year. The company provides back-end as a service solution for online games such as covering player data, lobbies, matchmaking, social systems, and so forth. They've partnered with developers Frost Giant, X-Blizzard, as well as Lightforge Games, also X-Blizzard. And we just want to congratulate founders Eden Chen and Chris Cobb. Uh, and you'll be hearing for those two, from those two fine gentlemen again on the Deconstructor of Fun podcast sometimes in the near future. Uh, number two update: Keck or Kek Entertainment raised three million in pre-seed from the powerful Play Ventures. As always, we give them a shout out and the Games Fund uh, that is focused on the uh, the companies behind the Iron Curtain. So it's it's a company funded by former executives at Pixonic and My Games. So if you don't if you forgot Pixonic, they've actually are the behind the uh, the mass hit War Robots, made five hundred million in gross revenue. So I think this is kind of following that type of a shooter approach. What's interesting about this investment, in my opinion, and please do weigh in, is that this is one of the first times I'm I'm seeing a Western VC going into into investing into. Um, sort of an Eastern European, like, let's be honest, Russian company, not Eastern European, Russian company. And uh, and when we consider that the region has over 5,000 game studios, this is actually uh, interesting avenues because before, like in the PlayRix podcast that we did, we've, we've heard that, that PlayRix does a lot of these investments and there's a lot of great companies in that area and kind of like uh, Western VCs are not really maybe looking into that area so fondly. What do you guys think, Suford? So yeah, I, I worked with the Pixonic um, team a couple years ago. Really smart, you know. You know, doing doing it again. Uh, they had a successful exit. Seems like a good bet. Although I mean, play. I, I don't know if I would. You know, I guess yeah, they're Western in in, the, in that. I guess it's headquartered in Finland, but they've also got you know the outposts in Singapore. They they seem like to have a pretty global focus. And I I don't know with gaming, and there's no real reason to to have a geo focus in my opinion. Yeah. Right. It, you just don't see that much companies like Western VCs but, investing I, into <laughs> Russia. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges in Russia, right? Sure. Yeah. You know, really? Political and <laughs> well, I, economical and laws and <laughs> you know, a lot are, of people choose not to invest in, in Russian countries. Yeah. Are the Kek, are the Kek guys? Is this found, is this based in Russia? Because I think the no, last it's one was not. It was. Right, exactly. Because I mean, I, 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 I went, Cyprus. I went on site with them in Berlin when I worked with them. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't think they're based in. Uh, yeah, the, the the HQs are usually out of Cyprus. Like my dad was just recently in Cyprus, and he said it's like a, it's like a little Russia. He speaks Russian you know, <laughs> as his native. It was like it was it was like being at home, except with palm trees. So <laughs> there's plenty of Russians in in Cyprus. Um, all right, moving on, moving on. Final one. Uh, OCP raised. 4.3 million to empower players to create games. Listen, I don't know this, but the final fine gentlemen's uh, brothers, Mike and Nick Adamus, who are Epic veterans, connected with me, sent a really nice email, uh, like really talking nicely about our podcast. And they said, hey, by the way, we raised this amount of money and we're doing something really cool. Would you mind giving us a shout out? Hey, you gave a, a, such a nice message, so we will give you a shout out. The the new company Omni Creator Products raised four point three to empower every player to become an active participant in creation of games. So, congratulations to the guys, and thanks for being a fan of dude, the podcast. <laughs> you are nothing but a two bit whore, dude. What are you just talking like, about? Stop! Like, just... No chit chat. No chit chat. No chit chat. All right, no all right. I, I can't insult Mishka. What what fun is it? No, Adam. No chit chat. No chit chat. All right. All right. So. 
Uh, my quick update, I had a chance to meet with Candice from New Zoo fame and now with uh, NVIDIA. And honestly, it was kind of an apology tour for being such a jerk on the podcast about New Zoo. And also to like kind of meet her and, and, and see what she's all about. And I will have to admit, she did not disappoint. She was super smart, super thoughtful. And unlike me, very half full versus half empty and sees all the possibilities while I see all the shortcomings, I suppose. Um, what I didn't know was that she's actually a double E major from and an MBA, uh, clearly much more educated and likely smarter than I am. But, but experience trumps education almost every time, right? So I am right about the future of cloud gaming, regardless of her intelligence, right? But we can agree to disagree and get along just fine. Um, and I wish everyone else could do the same. So thank you, Candace, for uh, uh, indulging me. And we went out in Palo Alto with all the uh, uh, good looking people, I suppose. Um, I always feel I always feel completely out of place at, in Palo Alto for some reason. I'm just, I, you know, I'm not handsome enough for something. But anyway, oh, no chit shot. Sorry, well, no chit chat. Moving on. <laughs> I, what, what are you talking about? Handsome people in Palo Alto? Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, people Dude, in hoodies? I don't know. It's all, it's where all the, it's like going to Marina in San Francisco. Like, I, I, no. Too many good looking people, right? No. All in their, like, yeah, all in their <laughs> exercise outfits. You know, it's just, okay. Don't you feel, I don't know. For Anyways. me, I feel uncomfortable. And don't go to LA. Don't go to right, LA. No chat, chit chat. <laughs> okay, no, no, no fun. No, no fun. Adam no, says no fun. No so we fun. have no fun. No fun, please. We can't. Um, Amazon New World has bigger problems now than deflation. Um, so I want to do a quick follow-up from last week uh, because actually there was a video um, surfaced just after we recorded last week showcasing uh, even more problems that the game now has, um, insinuating that the game actually could be client authoritative. Um, so hackers could actually modify their game state locally and then get it applied directly to the server. Uh, and the proof was is that basically moving the game window in window mode and then shaking the screen actually pauses messages uh, being sent to the server, actually creating invulnerability hacks and players reporting being able to actually duplicate gold in the economy through this. Um, it was later found out that the chat actually could deploy code through HTML. Uh, what this pretty much meant is that it allowed players to chat a gigantic yellow image or sausages to each other's players and um, basically block their vision uh, and even cause them to crash. Um, Amazon has since come out and said that the game is not client authoritative, um, fixed the issue with invulnerability uh, in the window and uh, fixed the issue with HTML. And of course, this is all thankfully because you know this would, would have been a massive disaster if they actually architected an MMO to be client authoritative. Um, so it just seems like Amazon is absolutely working like crazy as they should be to fix all of these issues. Um, but Amazon, after amazing launch, just continued to suffer major, major technical setbacks. Um, so, so far, New World actually still remains top 15 on Twitch. It's still dropping, but still impressive and has dropped roughly 75% of its CCU since its peak, but it is still top five in Steam on CCU. So, um, overall, just watching this because it's, it's seems like it's a, a technical mess, but at least from the engagement numbers, it's, it's not doing that, that badly. It's got a 93 hours average playtime per player on Steam Spy, which is pretty impressive. Um, so, uh, Roblox as well was down for 60 hours plus over the last weekend. Um, said it was in relation to specific experiences or partnerships on the platform, which caused everyone to speculate that Chipotle, yes, Chipotle, was to blame 
for offering a million dollars worth of free burritos on Roblox. Uh, so this is the world we live in now. NFTs are no longer the strangest thing we will report on. Now Roblox is getting hassled by burritos. Anyways, Roblox eventually responded what, with what actually happened. It was a bug when servers were scaling up. Um, that core system and their infrastructure became overwhelmed and it was not caused by any specific experience. But of course, the rumor mill still moves forward. So enjoy your free burritos, knowing you caused a lot of parents a lot of grief last weekend. Uh, Fortnite is leaving China. Uh, Fortress Nights is what it's called. We'll be shutting down November 15th. Uh, this has so far been an experiment. Um, it wasn't as if it was actively running. Um, but things to note, of course, Fortnite China actually had quite a few differences from the rest of the world. Um, weirdly small things like there was no skulls in the game. There was no MTX yet. Um, and you also had a lot of, say, child protection things that were trying to be compliant. So you would actually stop receiving experience points after 90 minutes and could not complete challenges. And a notification would prompt you to go and study. Um, I, I can't really add much more than that other than just saying it's weird. Uh, my last update, Timmy is working on a game called Honor of Kings World. There's a video. I absolutely recommend everybody go check it out. It's actually like it, it looks incredible. I, I Some people are speculating it does, it's not real. But to be honest, this video really makes this game look incredible. Um, I'm a huge fanboy of Timmy, as we know. Uh, Pokemon Unite, COD Mobile, Honor of Kings already are massive games. Um, and of course, Pokemon Unite still yet to see. But this game is exactly what I think the market needs. So I'm really looking forward to this game. A proven studio with incredible track record have been able to deliver high quality, fast cadence content and actually being able to attack, um, take their learnings from uh, uh, COD Mobile and Honor of Kings and actually apply it to the PVE space with a, say, Monster Hunter co-op feel. Um, that's what this video really showcased. So overall, I'm really bullish on this right from the video. Uh, Adam, although I'm bullish on Pokemon Unite as well. No, no chatting, Eric. <laughs> can I add a question? I want have a question. Can I have one? Please? You can have one question. Okay. Is this? Do you think this is like an MMO, or is this is this like Genshin, or is this something? Is it, tell me it's not a lane based M MOBA. It is not a MOBA. Absolutely not. Okay. It looks like right. it is a Genshin Impact meets Monster Hunter World. Oh, I, I'm in, dude. Yeah. I think it looked really cool. I, I was actually very, very, very impressed. Uh, if they could pull this off in a full game like this, yeah. uh, beware. Yeah, and they can. The Western developers. They can, they can pull it out. Like, Timmy is a monster. It's Timmy. It's Timmy. Yeah. <laughs> Anything. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, right. Sorry for the rush and all this stuff. Um, but, yeah, schedules and time differences are, are getting awkward. Everybody so actually has a job. <laughs> yeah, we all have jobs, <laughs> which makes things difficult. Um, so the first article is actually from Elite Game Developers. Uh, it, it was not written by me, but it was from uh, Yoakum, which is a series of silver bullets. Um, so personally, I'm just going to give up on reporting news. Everything is NFTs, so I'm just going to go back to talking about philosophy and product strategy. Uh, but the article this week is, is on focus, really Mostly from the perspective of a small studio, which, to be honest, is relevant for both large and small developers. But it was bringing up points from books like How the Money Fall, which is an excellent book from Jim Collins, uh, TLDR. Great companies fall into a stage of thrashing and decline. And this negative cycle is made worse by companies losing focus and believing that a series of silver bullets will save, will save them. 
they will end up under-resourcing a lot of different silver bullets and under-resourcing their core revenue-generating projects, causing this cycle to decline. Um, I'm actually remembering another great book um, that was not covered in this article, but really talks about this as well. Um, the strategy behind the hockey stick. This is referring to the line graph everybody draws when they want to get funding for their crazy idea. Excellent book, uh, highly recommended. Um, it's a great read about analyzing public companies and the common pattern of what makes companies value reach an entirely new tier within its industry, which typically is a focused strategy on an ambitious large-scale project that is appropriately resourced. This does not guarantee success, but it was clearly correlated with a lot of co public companies reaching new tiers. So Yoakum in this article was advocating for companies to focus over going scattershot after their first success. That after a lot of times, startups and companies believe that the path to growth is on stacking more and more ambitious projects, and that each game is almost a guaranteed hit, and that will create explosive growth. And that running these games in parallel, in broad genres, typically, is healthy, which I would absolutely challenge. When in reality, in my point of view, appropriately resourcing your hit project, your initial one, to continue to grow has to be priority number one, especially in the context of live games. Then resourcing one major priority next project is far healthier for most companies. Too many companies get a hit, go broad, under-resource those new projects, under-resource their initial hit game, and then scale back eventually to those initial hits instead of focusing and lining up each silver bullet properly. Um, so the examples here, um, he included things like Best Fiends with uh, Seriously, um, but I think Eric and I can both attest to Wuga as well, having to go through this. Um, I think that it's in its climate with so much growth still being unlocked through live operations of old games. I think this is just generally absolutely true. We have to challenge the traditional gaming industry assumption that a game studio's value is based off how many hit games it can release when it actually is whether or not it can build, you know, one, a sustaining live service that can grow year over year. What do you guys think? Yeah. I, you know, what's funny about, about this is that this like, dovetails exactly into the next article. Are you going to cover this Ubisoft thing? No, no, no. I'm going to save no, that for later. We're going to talk okay. Apple of it next. We're going to leave the uh, the juicy Activision towards the end. So Okay. So so anyway, I, I, the reason it's relevant is that this is like totally reminding me of why Ubisoft continues to fail over and over again because they just keep chasing the, ch the shiny penny and not like focusing on building out their own IP and and building out experiences that um, you know EA and Activision have done for some of their core franchises and and um, yeah focus 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 right stop chasing and now Ubisoft and we'll get to it next week is is chasing the NFT craze which you know may amount to something but it's also uh, you know moving them away from actually focusing on what they need to do is fix their, fix their studios. Yeah. So it, anyway, it's a, I, 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 agree with this. I think, I think this, this sort of an unfocused model was perpetrated or kind of made famous by Supercell who was able to find growth in multiple different genres. And, and that model, I, I remember when Wuga adopted kind of similar type of a model and a lot of other companies adopted that model. So I think like <laughs> the effect on at least, uh, the sort of a, like a, portfolio strategy that comes from looking at Supercell has been net negative to <laughs> on, on other companies than, than Supercell. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's there's plenty of examples who've sort of followed that path of like, we'll just make games that we like to make that are awesome 
and it ends up in not making any of, of, of successful games or not, you know, finding consecutive hits and not, you know, kind of restarting all the time. Yeah, I think you, you see this a lot, like with, with gaming studios that, that are in it and they've, they've, they've waited way too long, right? In, in like from the, from the sort of starting point of the decline to try to address it. And then they just thrash, right? Like they just chase these new ideas and, and whatever is getting people a lot of funding. I mean, you saw this originally with, with crypto gaming like two years ago and now with NFTs, it's just like a whole new wave of it. Um, but you know, a lot of these, this is, it's what you, you can't start addressing the decline when you're like kind of in the tail end of it, right? You need to start addressing the decline when it starts to happen or you should hopefully be able to anticipate it. Um, but like the, the answer is usually not to then like, let's spin up a whole bunch of like Hail Mary bets. Um, and hope that one lands, right? Like the, the, ideally you'd have some kind of like systematic approach where like, okay, we've got an asset. Let's try to, let's try to, uh, you know, to turn its performance around. And, you know, ideally if you're, if you're, if you're in the, if you, if you have like some kind of, um, allocation of resources to big bets, you've started that before you need it, right? Cause if you're in the position where like you need a big, huge win to save the company, like you're probably going to be acting like emotionally and out of des- desperation in a way that it's just not going to happen for you. Or you just yeah. won't have enough runway to, to wait until one of those like realizes into a, into a success. I guess my key question here is why does this keep happening? Like it, I remember um, like 10 years ago, um, this being like a, a major topic as well um, with seeing plenty of companies that had gone through focus and then coming back to it. I feel like it, it keeps coming back to new companies that find those, those success points because it's an easy decision to make, right? Like at yeah. the time, it feels like we're, we are um, kind of building on our success. We're um, kind of doubling up on what makes us great. And we become kind of complacent over what it takes in order to be, say, that broad of a company. And it, it, it's great to be, say, a CEO to say, stand up in front of the company and say, we're going to be able to go into any genre and win, right? We're going to be able to start up all these different projects and all of these people that have been running live games for years, uh, we're going to be able to hand you the keys and say, you get to start your own brand new project from the beginning. And at the time, right, like just in that short-term focus, everybody gets excited and everyone yeah. kind of gets drunk on, on that excitement, right? And instead of going back to kind of operating principles, I, I feel like well, that's why I, it keeps I, happening. Well, in my opinion, and I think we've talked about this before, is that creatives want to create, yeah. right? And so there's only so many expansion packs of The Sims that you could do before you go absolutely batshit insane, right? And so these people want to build stuff new. And so they are looking for the shiny new thing that they can build and they pitch it and try to get it done, right? Meanwhile, the executives are like, look, we need you to keep making the fucking Sims, right? Stop it, right? But they need to manage that. And so I think that's kind of where the the, the difference is they, they want to keep these people, but they can't keep them if they're not feeling creatively, you know, uh, inspired, so. Sorry for interrupting this podcast, but I got an important message. It's about increasing your game's revenues. I bet your mobile games is ready to find new untapped audience and a juicy 40% revenue boost. Well, you can achieve global reach and acquire new players with local payment methods and exclusive content and with huge savings on platform fees. After recent events allowing developers to sell virtual items and currencies directly to players with a substantial savings on transaction fees, Exola launched WebShop for mobile games. 
This timely solution helps you unlock global potential and grow your mobile games beyond the App Store and unite your player community across all devices. Plus, it can also improve discoverability and boost player retention. If you're ready to increase revenue, save on fees, and regain control over distribution, Exola Web Shop for mobile games can help you succeed. Visit exola.pro slash D-O-F or go to the link in this podcast description. Let's take a little break and talk about how to boost your live ops. Now, we all know that you need great people and fantastic tools to get the most out of your live games. And I'm sure you got the people part covered. But how fantastic your tools truly are. Well, listen, if your game is made with Unity, you need to check out Beamable. Beamable is like an operating system for live games built in Unity. Beamable simplifies everything from updating your game to selling all those cool in-game items with special offers. And when it comes to live events and competitive features like leaderboards, Beamable got you covered. And Beamable is not only for your product folks. With visual prefabs for Unity and the ability to keep all your server code in C-sharp means life is simpler for your programmers and most importantly, you'll get to the market faster. If much lower cost of development and efficiency of operations is your jam, then Beamable is your toast. Go to Beamable.com because Deconstructor of Fun told you so. I, I can talk from my own experience. Like I've, I've made this mistake myself. Uh, and and it, was, it was basically like we're, we were looking at our current strategy and the games we we're making and couldn't turn around the existing live game. So we're like, wait, let's start with the with the uh, with the sort of like this is our capabilities. Where should we go? And then when you start pivoting towards different um, di- different path or start looking for a different path, there's so many cool ideas that come in at the same time. And you're like, well, we could start this, start that, and start this. And suddenly you notice you're making three different type of games, and and then you're really you know fucked because you can't really move talent from one type of game to another because they don't want to work on that type of, like if you're making an RPG and you're making a, um, a four X game, it's kind of hard to start moving the talent between them or even like a sports game and a four X game. So, um, it's, it's easy to end up in that situation because you get so excited. Uh, that's why it's really important to learn from hopefully others mistakes and not your own, not to do it and just continue focusing relentlessly and focusing on one type of a, strategy and maybe just, you know, expanding to a nearest genre, but while using your existing capabilities and assets and, and tools rather than starting from the, uh, from the ground up. All right. Um, maybe that's the segue to, to the, uh, the app loving post. So we've been talking about app loving, especially in the last podcast, which got totally trashed towards the end for somewhat reason. Uh, but but definitely app loving was was one of the topics, and that got me into kind of looking more deeply into app loving, trying to understand it. So as of late, the company has definitely been on a tear. So it started off the uh, the the stock price was a little bit over sixty, uh, then it dipped down to like forty five or fifty, and currently it's it's trading at at uh, ninety nine. So it's actually uh, doubled since. Uh, since, since since during this year, and in the last quarterly, like the highlights were that the revenues grew two hundred percent organically and forty percent uh, quarter over quarter, um, and we we see that they achieved record software platform enterprise clients. The adjusted EBITDA was two hundred and two year over year at one hundred eighty four million, and adjusted EBITDA margin improved to twenty seven. So overall, they're doing really great despite the uh, the whole IDFA deprecation. 
Now, when we look at AppLove, and it's kind of like divided into the ad tech and, and the games business. And I looked at the uh, the ad tech part first, which I have no clue of. So it's good that we have Suford here. Uh, but I looked at the uh, the AppSlayer performance index. I don't know how how reliable that is. It seems like everybody is hyped about it. So the scan index, kind of like industry first SK ad network ranking, and based on um, based on that, AppLoving ranks third after TikTok and Facebook. And it, it explains that the uh, the network's focus has been on high quality user base and on on campaign analysis. They have all the ad formats from interstitials to ads to banner ads to mobile apps to to video ads to playable ads. And the tool set is really impressive. Like they have Max for monetization and in-app bidding. They got App Discovery for reaching new users. They got the Spark Labs, which is kind of like the Luna Labs of Iron Source, basically in-house creative studio. They got Adjust, which is the uh, the measurement part- partner, and now with the acquisition of Mopub that Eric you wrote about, it gives them a, a this surge of advertising supply. It eliminates competition and it gives the SDK access to the Mop cli- Mopub client space. And as you said, Eric, it's going to probably be chopped between Max and App Discovery uh, and and not being brought in as a new tool. So, you know, the challenge that that Uploving is is has is just it's not only an at work it also develops and publishes games and thus essentially is competing directly with its clients now Applovin has data access to different type of events and with the adjust acquisition the data for example shows completion of event based on different creatives so meaning that this gives an incredible advantage as Applovin in theory has app event optimization data that they can utilize to significantly improve creatives in their own portfolio business at the same time this also gives sort of a first steps to AppLovin's M&A and publishing business as they can spot positive trends in data and either acquire the developer or the asset or perhaps uh, go with the uh, with a similar type of a title and kind of compete against the uh, the uh, the developer. Now, I don't know if this is the way, but in theory. Uh, so the, the question has always been like, do game developers worry that they will lose too much intel to AppLovin? And I believe personally, correct me if I'm wrong, that large game publisher have been moving or considering moving off of Adjust. Uh, and then smaller ones, not so much because, you know, they'll go where where the best offer is. And if it's Adjust, they will work with Adjusts and, and their ad tech solutions uh, and in the hopes of, you know, AppLovin won't use the data to to compete against them. Uh, but one one maybe important part is that some game publishers may not appreciate that their attribution solution is owned by a competitor like AppLovin. The switching cost of moving to a new attribution provider is really high. So AppLovin will have full visibility into which games are driving conversion for adjust customers and may be able to use that information to benefit the advertising campaign on its own game. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Now, that's their ad tech business. Uh, Sufer, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things. Like one is that you know the MMP category is not growing, right? I mean, if anything, mm-hmm. people are just abandoning their MMPs, but they're not really switching that I've seen. Uh, mm-hmm. But I've, I have seen a number of advertisers just abandon the MMP, right? Uh, or at least on iOS, right? And and I think you know it, the the idea is like a lot of the tech that you build to to sort of to 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 align yourself with the way that things work on iOS now probably can be applied to Android at some point in the future. And so there's maybe is not a need for an MMP on Android either. So I don't know that there's a lot of switching happening, but it, you know, in some cases it might be that the acquisition was a catalyst to, to move off of adjust, but I don't know that people are switching away 
from adjust to another MMP for competitive reasons. I, I could be wrong about that, and, and maybe I am. Um, the other thing is these ra- these a- these ad tech rankings, the league tables, they are content marketing kind of just noise. I wouldn't trust the the rankings here. Um, you, you know, it's it's just kind of whatever. It's 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 just it's just stuff to drive. Uh, form signups to download the white paper and then you know the, the, the to my mind like those are those are no better than random uh, at giving you a picture <laughs> of who the best the best ad networks are um and, and like kind of lastly i i don't know that anybody's ever moved away from like apple is so big it's really hard to just not use it and so yeah. like the you know the, the the sort of like um uh the the kind of um uh, competitive issue is has been uh salient since Lion Studios was announced. And I don't know that there are a lot of examples of companies that say we're no longer working with AppLovin because they're conflicted there. I think you just can't avoid it. And especially now that they bought Mopub. I mean, they've, they've done a really good job of sort of like vertically integrating on the ad tech side and then horizontally integrating across, you know, operating this entire sort of like supply, you know, ad network, supply and demand side ad network plus content of their own. Um, so I, I don't know that it's a possibility. Like, how do you just, you can't, you can't, to my mind, like if a UA manager made the decision kind of unilaterally to, to exclude one of the four kind of major ad networks from the mix, right. Or a publisher did the same. You'd have to answer to the executive team who doesn't really understand that, that competitive conflict, right. You say, what, what are you doing? You're cutting off one of the four major ad networks for either publishing or advertising. Like that's, that's insane. And then you try to explain like, well, you may, UA manager doesn't have the remit to kind of make that kind of decision. Like, well, strategically it makes sense because blah, blah, blah. They're, <laughs> they're also building game. Like there's just a disconnect there. And there's like yeah. no incentive too. like UA managers are not incentivized to make decisions like that. Right. So I, I don't think the competitive conflict, um, if it, if it would have been, uh, a, a factor it, it that would have that would have surfaced years ago and i think just the fact like in all these other subsequent acquisitions are just a testament to the fact that no one makes decisions on that basis mm, yeah and they're not incentivized so what do you eric think about their content fortress play like that was one of one of my topics that i wanted to discuss but i mean you're the uh you're the uh, the king of content fortresses so how do you evaluate app loving on that I mean, I think it's, they've just executed beautifully. It's, it, it's just really brilliant, right? To watch them do that. Um, and wrap their arms around all these assets. Like I, the, the thing about Mopub is like, I don't think anybody assumed it was even for sale, right? Like in retrospect, it makes sense that Twitter sold it. Um, but you know, at the same time, it would have made more sense for Twitter to like really integrate it and use it. But given that it was just sitting on the shelf, right? And hadn't really been invested into. Um, and hadn't, hadn't really been fully utilized. It makes sense that they sold it, but no one, re- I don't think anyone really thought it was for sale. Like no one thought yeah. it was in play. Um, and now my sent, my belief is, and I don't, I can't validate this, but my belief is that Apple Oven has, you know, owns a majority of the supply for gaming advertisers. Right. And like, you know, my, my sense is that their thesis is that demand just follows supply. They, they, they kind of, and, and I think that the thing is, if you get to 51% of supply, then you're going to get to 80, right? Like yeah. you, you, you'll just sort of start elbowing other people out of the market and you'll consolidate more and more. So, so when we think about like app Levin's growth, there's really kind of two growth avenues. There's the publisher growth Avenue, uh, them as a, as a, you know, as a publisher, meaning that they can publish game, they can do internal development, which they've been incredibly successful at. They can acquire assets like match 3d. They can do direct investments, which they have done in multiple different studios and they can just straight up acquire companies. 
And I think data is kind of their key competence there. They can hit up on an asset early and not be forced to make those billion-dollar acquisition. Or they can choose to either publish for, for the developer, acquire that asset, or just fast follow the asset. Uh, the data also allows them to be very effective in marketing. But I think that's kind of in theory. So we, we talk a lot how they see all the data and they see how all the creatives work. But when I looked at kind of the history of the games that they've acquired, there hasn't been this massive growth after the acquisition like we see with Zynga, for example. When Zynga acquires an asset, it usually grows afterwards. It's like they, they're able to, to, or Playtika is another example. But with Applovin, it's like they actually, most of the assets have kind of like declined or, or found like a sort of a sweet spot uh, after initial uh, initial growth post acquisition, so I don't know, but definitely the uh, the uh, data allows them to to be very effective on that. But you know, maybe most importantly, like like you mentioned, the content fortress it allows them to have that operational ad tech. It allows them to have that very effective portfolio management, and then you know that command account economy because they they look at the data. They don't play games. They don't do politics inside of it. It's just like what makes sense. But on the ad tech side, Eric, like what do you think are the, uh, the sort of a growth elements? Is it truly like chasing the supply? Well, yeah. But I, so one thing about the game data is that I don't uh-huh. know that anyone knows what studios App Lovin owns, right? Like, oh, I, don't yeah, think that's that's a, I don't think, so, so when you look and you do this sort of aggregated published review on Sensor Tower, I don't know that Sensor Tower captures all of the game studios they own. Right. Like it's kind of I think they don't make that public like they don't they haven't announced. So I don't know that Sensor Tower is able to aggregate that all together from a publisher view. I mean, obviously, we know some of the bigger ones, but but I don't know that we know all of them. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think the ad tech side, I mean, like, look, the big issue for Apple and I think is is what happens with fingerprinting. And, you know, like there's been um, there there's a really good like fintech uh, or sorry, uh, fintwit guy who who's like obsessed with Apple and. And he's become kind of like a fanboy, but he writes he writes some good commentary about Apple, I and mean, he loves Apple, and he thinks it's like the it's the biggest growth opportunity, uh, you know uh, that you know that 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 he's aware of. But but he's his point has been like fingerprinting, yeah, that might impact Apple, um, if that if that gets policed. But a, it's not certain that that's going to happen, that it's going to be policed, and b, um, you know, Apple, probably took a lot of market share from FAN, right? FAN, you know, basically was app was was Facebook's DSP. And, you know, they, they lost a lot of market share because, you know, it basically it, it they couldn't use Facebook's data anymore to do targeting. Right. And so Apple Oven probably stole market share from Facebook, uh, Blue App and Instagram because of fingerprinting, because fingerprinting just made it more appealing on a relative basis. But also just FAN is going to have lost some market share because they no longer had the data infrastructure that they have to build everything from scratch. Right. So I think fingerprinting is a potential headwind for them. Um, I think, you know, ATT was probably a massive gift. To, to that whole category of, of companies because of fingerprinting and because they lost basically nothing um, as a result of ATT and, you know, and, and Facebook and, and other networks did, as we saw in earnings uh, last two weeks. But, you know, the, the question is, like, what, what kind of headwind is presented if that does start getting policed? And, you know, if Facebook does rebuild its FAN targeting to be contextual, how big of a competitive threat is that to these ad networks? And I think it's actually a pretty substantive one. I think I think I think Facebook could probably build a really compelling, really competitive ad network that targets contextually, um, and so that might you know eat up some of the benefit that they all got from ATT. Got it. And by fingerprinting, you mean same like probabilistic attribution, right? 
I mean, call it what you want. I yeah, sure, probabilistic attribution. But like Apple said, you're not supposed to take device parameters to do unique identification. Mm -hmm. I understand that any of these companies will tell me I'm wrong that they're not doing that. But my sense is Apple thinks they are and will police it at some point. But you know, I, I don't. It's kind of it's kind of pointless and boring to argue semantics. Yeah, I just with, wanted to with people that are very heavily invested in, in one <laughs> yeah. side of that. So so for the listeners, like I bet like eighty percent don't understand probabilistic attribution. So I'm just going to explain it here. It's, it means the process of assigning campaign membership probabilities to a user-based attributes and behavior of that user. Unless a user shares their IDFA on iOS 14, there's no way to assign at a 100% probability that a specific campaign drove an install. Therefore, there's a set of probabilities that the install was driven by one or more campaigns. So of course, the more data you have over multiple different games, the more likely your probabilistic attribution can work. So... That's that's the case of App Lovin. Um, let's talk about something much more fun. Let's talk about Activision. <laughs> well, my my quick take on App Lovin is mm. this, uh, and, and this is a little bit too close, so I can't really talk yeah. about this at length. But if 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 Apple blocks IPs in order to fight off fingerprinting, there's nowhere anybody can hide really mm -hmm. at that stage. So I think that will be kind of a harbinger of. of Ill, Ill things for Mr. Applevin. And then finally, like, I agree with him. I agree with Eric that it's really hard to know exactly what published, what studios these owns, according to Sensor Tower app. Yeah. App. Yeah. But the fact is that the major, their major games are all declining at a relatively torrid pace. And that's not good for a, a super high growth company, right? When your main businesses are, are, are falling, right? Um, and then finally, I would say that the new games that have come out have not been scaling yeah. at all. Yes. So uh, I don't know if they're offsetting. It seems like a very leaky bucket from a product perspective. I agree. And that, that I've was already said too much. That was the kind of like my point of, of like everybody says that they have all this data and they will take your data and they have, you know, they can figure out what campaigns work. But but when you start looking at these games that we know they've acquired or they know they've launched, they haven't been able to grow Actually, they've declined, you know, and there's usually the growth spur, yeah. there's decline. So, so it's like, really, they have yeah. all the data? It doesn't seem that way. So it seems like Playtica has been much more I mean, I, I, I think it's a, it's a challenging environment. You're seeing Playtica get destroyed today. And, you know, you know, obviously already Zynga got destroyed. Um, Sideplay is probably going to be in, in, in the crosshairs too. It's a really tough environment to scale new games and to be in mobile just in general. Um, so I think we're starting to see that. And if Apple continues to go down this road of, of being, you know, you know, anti-publisher, which they are, um, then it's just going to get worse. Yep. Um, so this leads us to the next big topic, right? Which is the big topic of the week <laughs> is that Activision tumbles under the weight of game delays and tepid forecast. Um, so if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, we have been talking about this ad nauseum, right? And I'm almost... So sick of talking it between this and 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 talking to my clients about it, but we were well ahead of the curve on this. Is that that Blizzard is collapsing right as we speak? Right. So Jason Schreier from Bloomberg writes: um, Activision Blizzard, the video game publisher, facing lawsuits for sexual discrimination and harass harassment, delayed two of its most anticipated games and gave a fourth quarter forecast that fell short of expectations, which is somewhat true and not somewhat true. They actually reiterated guidance. They beat and reiterated, which uh, kind of, it, it's not, it's a soft signal basically to some degree. But the more important thing is that both Overwatch and Diablo 4 will no longer take B out in the next two years. They, they're 
delayed indefinitely is a little bit extreme, but they're delayed. Um, and then <laughs> surprisingly, <laughs> Jen O'Neill, who literally just took this top spot like three months ago, is leaving as co-head of Blizzard. Wow. Now Mike Barra is in charge. And even though, um, sorry, I, as I said, even though they maintain guidance, investors did not get excited by this. Um, so the quote that they say is, we look at what was left in the final phase of production with fresh eyes, and we saw that allowing teams more time would make better games and give Blizzard a chance to further expand both teams, Ibarra said in a conference call with analysts. So that's basically what happened, right? The stock is down between 15 and 20% today. Um, it's, it's a disaster of epic proportions. <laughs> and frankly, I don't even know where to begin because I've been talking about this so long. I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to rehash the old stuff that I've been saying, but basically, in essence, Blizz, Bobby Kotick has been destroying Blizzard for years. And we've been talking about this for the last two years. And, and Jen O'Neill actually stepping down after six months says a lot because you imagine how much money she was given to take this role, right? And the amount of pressure she must have experienced over the next last six, three, three months in, in dealing with these like delays, right? And, and like I said, other pro, but J. Allen Brack was at the helm for a few years and he must have aged like 20 years in the process, right? And, and I think it's actually good for her, right? Good for her to get out of there as fast as possible so that she doesn't have to deal with all these headaches from these jackals at freaking Activision, you know? It's like, I'm out, right? She's doing some nonprofit thing now because she, I, why would you, life is too short to deal with this, even if with how much money they were giving her. But anyway, as I said, Jen was not really qualified to do this. And it doesn't, it makes a lot of sense that she's gone, uh, frankly. Um, but, to put this into perspective uh, from the brunt, blunt tool of revenue and earnings is that Blizzard basically peaked in calendar 16 at $2.5 billion in revenue. That year, this year they're likely doing around 1.7 and next year probably down to 1.5. So they basically lost a billion dollars in revenue over the last five years, primarily because of WoW, but also misexecution across products, et cetera, et cetera. But even during its peak in calendar 16, they were still not growing profitability the way King and Call of Duty were. So from Bobby's perspective, and I'm just trying to be as balanced here as possible, from Bobby's perspective, this is something to fix. Like, again, not only were they declining in revenue, but they were also in profitability. So Bobby and, and his team, his exec team, basically started drop shipping execs into, into Blizzard. And one of them is the current CFO, Armin Zerza, in calendar 16 who by most accounts is not the most the nicest person in the world. But I think this was the beginning of the end. And, and to make a long story short, during at, since 2016 uh, through 2021, they have lost every single creative leader in the company, right? And then the sexual harassment suit loss happens, right? Which further erodes the culture and now is making real people who get shit done going for the door, right? The revolving door of Blizzard as we know it, right? Development directors, art directors, all these people that actually get shit done are gone, are leaving, right? Which makes it almost impossible for you to execute against products. And so that I think is what's happening as we see it right now. And actually come to think about it, there is no coincidence that the, that the arrival of Armin, things started going downhill, right? And actually I'm gonna blame Armin Zerza for the demise of Blizzard. It was on his arrival in 16 that put things in motion that were basically the end of days at Blizzard, right? I know it wasn't him alone, and I know he's just a symbol, right? But he's a symbol of all the Bobby's minions that they threw in place, like all these McKenzie consultants and these Bane consultants managing blizzards into the ground. First, Morham leaves in calendar 18. The following three years, we saw a departure of every 
creative executive at the company. Honestly, I think Armin was the bringer of the apocalypse at Blizzard. He's like death, destruction, pestilence, all and famine all rolled up into one, right? And and guess what? This guy has been elevated to CFO, making generational wealth at Activision. The Harbinger Apocalypse is now leading the entire company into oblivion, you know, in my opinion. So let me take a breath for a moment because it's not just Armin. It's just the way this thing was whole managed, right? And so my question is, what happens now? And all my investor clients are going to ask me, what the fuck happens now, right? Um, I really want to say that they're going to turn this around, right? That we're going to get amazing experience from Overwatch in 23 and 24 and Diablo in 24, most likely. And that WoW will be back, the best expansion ever in the next 18 months. But perhaps the, the damage is too deep, you know? All the creatives have left the building. It's too much damage to repair. Perhaps, you know, it'll be like new franchise from Morheim, you know, and Dreamhaven that will replace WoW and Overwatch and Diablo. You know, it's hard to say at this point. You know, the hope is that the allure of working at these big franchises will bring in legions of new people that innovate and create more, even more compelling experiences. But I think this is a bit naive, you know, and this is kind of what the PR crap that they're throwing out there, you know, Mike is saying and, and other people at Blizzard and Activision. Um, and I I just don't know if I actually believe that because I think that the longer term challenges for these guys is quality, not delays, right? These delays are a, a result of, you know, lack of cohesion around the teams and people leaving in droves, right? But But how can they replicate the same quality without the old guard, you know? I mean... They had really, really special people working on these projects, like, and solving very complex problems, right? PhDs in engineering and mathematics, professors that came to Blizzard because they love Blizzard and they love the games that Blizzard makes, right? And they would take a pay cut. They would leave their tenure positions in, 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 in institutions in order to come and work and build things. And these people were worth their weight in gold. They were worth like 30 engineers because they were so brilliant at what they did. So that's almost impossible to replicate. So they're going to get games out eventually, but what at what cost and what quality, right? Is it going to be ever be any good anymore? So these are the type of questions that I have to answer over the next few years. I'm actually, frankly, sick, sick of talking about this whole thing, yeah. but it just makes me insanely, this was so mismanaged from the get-go and, and, and not to pick on Armin because I don't know him from Adam, right? But like, he was the beginning of the end. When they drop shipped him in as CFO of Blizzard, it was a bad look, right? It was basically that Moran couldn't manage his own shit and 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 he was gonna take control with all these other, and I don't wanna repeat that, the Bain and McKenzie guys, and 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 that was the end. You can't manage studios like this like 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 that at all, right? Um and you know, I, I think actually the well, I don't want to go on too much on this, but but I think the first step is to find a leader that actually can manage creatives, and and that would be a huge step in the right direction, and um, and to to basically shore up these teams. And I want to see evidence that people are not leaving anymore, and that that like that that we're going to see like cohesive teams going forward. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's it for now. But I, it's really really annoying, and I, I'm you know, in some ways, I'm glad that I was right about this. You know, I've been talking about this forever. And, and, and the reason that the stock is down, finally, I want to, last point. The reason that the stock is down is that Bobby and, and Armin and other people on the exec team were fucking telling investors succinctly that they will have big games from, from Blizzard. They were 
ensuring that this was happening. They were like giving all the investors confidence that this was going to happen next year when there was no evidence that that was happening. So I don't know what they were thinking. And and and, and in some ways, this is Armin's first rodeo, right? Because this is his first quarter out of the gate. And he's, they're down 15% and, and revising guidance and delaying product. It's not a good look. You know, it's not a good look. So anyway, well, any questions? I, I have some questions. So first of all, Regarding Armin, that's that's your your opinion. Uh, very, you know, not the official opinion of, of this podcast, but a very calculated. It's thing. a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Get over it. Exactly. Uh, I wanted to ask like this. So the culture is definitely a very challenging thing, and if there's a perception that the culture is going down, it's it's very hard to stop. So what if Blizzard would acquire Morheim's company? A dream was a dream forge. That's never going to happen. Why not? What are you talking about? We could kind of like bring up. Morheim doesn't want to go back. He's not working for Bobby again, well, ever. Well, maybe they make a He's nice deal. He's never working for anybody ever again. Well, maybe they don't have to. Maybe they'll be like, this dude, is. Dude, he doesn't care about money, dude. They, these people don't care about money. They made their money. But he cares that's, about that's Blizzard. That's the other thing is that. Yeah, but he cares about Blizzard. He gave up on Blizzard when he left, okay. honestly. In my opinion, sure he cares. There's no doubt he cares, but like he's moved on because he just couldn't handle it, right? Mm. No, who, nor could anybody, right? Like, I mean, just take a look at Jay Allen, dude. He didn't even do it that long. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he looks like eighty. You know? Okay, I'm, I'm not that familiar with Blizzard. I'm just asking, like, who's who's Jen O'Neill? Like, when did did she join recently, Blizzard, or like was she working at Activision? Dude, like, have you not been listening to this podcast? I am. Like, no. the Blizzard is Jen just not on my radar. It's not, not like the companies that I follow that much. I love their games. I I'm looking forward to playing Les Diablo, but but. You know, I don't remember these names. They're not in mobile. Evidently, Jen O'Neill is a really, really, really nice person. And she's actually a really good manager. And there's no doubt that, like, she was beloved, as far as I know, from people that I've talked to that work with her. Um, but she worked at, at um, she came over from um, Vicarious Visions, right? I think is the name of the mm. company. I'm totally blanking on it. And, uh, and she was put in charge. But the problem is that she's been doing ports of Skylanders for the last decade, right? So coming and managing something like Blizzard, which is, you know, a $2 billion company um, and working, you know, for these jackals at Activision, I, I don't think she was the right fit for that. I think that takes a different type of person to to manage. Um, and maybe Ibarra is up for the task, but I wouldn't be surprised if Ibarra doesn't last, but he's been there for a while, so he might be okay. But they need a really strong leader to basically manage all these creatives and and and, and get these teams in order, Right. Um, and I just don't think that Jen was 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 deep enough to do that. But that's just my opinion. I don't know her. Who'd be a, who'd be in your opinion like a good creative leader for Blizzard? Oh man, that's tough, dude. That's tough. They got money. They can hire you know, anybody. Like, I know, but right now, no one wants to. You know, no one wants to get into that muck. You know, like it, it would be Herculean, right, to find someone to do that. I'll have to give that some thought. Yeah. But, there are a few people that come to mind, but I don't think they're 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 available or, or yeah, interested. It, frankly, it has to be somebody <laughs> with uh, with a strong self belief and and um, you know that they could come in and and turn this this ship around. But um, but yeah, definitely definitely challenging times. I don't know. Again, this is the uh, the this is the Eric Kress analysis, so it might be a little bit of on a hyperbolic side of thing. Uh, but um, but I'm I'm definitely looking forward to playing the next Diablo. I just got received my um. My closed beta invite. So uh, looking forward for that. 
And um, oh yeah, yeah. Let me know how that goes. I I, I should be getting one as well. Yeah. And then uh, Call of Duty comes out next tomorrow. <laughs> oh okay. So, so so yeah, we we got plenty of Blizzard folks on, on the Deconstructor Fun Slack channel. So you know, um, they've been active. You know, not of course not talking about the company, but that's how we got the uh, the closed beta invites. So. Yeah. Anyways, I think maybe they're not maybe they're, they're not being so nice to me because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you're talking shit about anyway. Me I, I I'm I'm hoping for the best. Yeah. Like likewise. I guess you guys. I guess the other thing you guys have to understand is Activision going down 15 percent is a huge freaking deal. Yes. Right. That's a lot of money. That's billions and billions of dollars of investment gone. Like in 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 a day. And uh, and this is not like these small like rinky dink companies going up and down. Even Playtika getting crushed today is not how, how, nearly as material as something like Activision. What happened to Playtika? How much did it get crushed? I just down like twenty percent. What? 5%. What? Yeah. Are you kidding me, dude? Look, at the end of the day, we've been talking about this for how long? Is that IDFA fucks people and, and Apple is totally screwing over all their partners, right? I mean, how many times do I have to say this, right? First it's Zynga, now it's Playtika. It's only a matter of time before App Lovin, Iron Source, the rest of them are going to get creamed, you know, because <laughs> Apple is just running roughshod on all the whole industry, you know? Yeah. And um, and so it's like, it's just it's just a question of timing. And that's what's so frustrating as an investor is like, you have no idea when this stuff is going to start to materialize. But uh, but it will. Yeah, and where where does it normalize? I mean, the fact that Platika is down twenty five percent, and this has no impact on the rest of the uh, companies, is is mind blowing, right? You don't think Platika Play is some of the better operators on the planet, yes. right? In terms of these these games, you don't think that that impacts other people? You know, that, like that's that's what I'm surprised. You know, I didn't see the Platika news. Do you think anybody else can? I didn't see the Platika no. news, and and I found their approach very. It was interesting because they didn't go with the app loving route. They didn't acquire ad tech. They had their own kind of like a playbook that they wanted to follow. And for them, getting ad tech would have been the most straightforward thing. I mean, they're in Israel, like the the homeland of ad tech and social casino. So the fact that they didn't go for that route and and thought that they had a better playbook and that this is how it materializes is pretty scary. But on that note, I think this is the fastest podcast we did. We almost... We almost hit an hour, <laughs> so we kind of shaved like maybe seven minutes off the podcast by by not having any fun. Uh, so probably with ne- next podcast, we'll be having more fun. Um, anyways, as always, keep sending the feedback. I'm not going to promise anymore that I'm going to publish everybody's PR notes, <laughs> no matter how nice the uh, no, how nicely you write about our podcast. But I might. You know, they, I might. They go to you. They know they go to you because they know it'll happen. They would never send that I, to me. I, yes, they would. would. You were like all about Candace now. So, so the thing is, like, I might. Like, it depends on how how nice of an adjectives you use, and we will publish your your latest PR news and talk about it in the update. So keep you know keep the nice words coming. We we are humans. We like to be we like to be complimented. <laughs> so so so.